What's up, everyone? This is Jose Nino again, coming with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I am joined by Kyle Matovic. He's a very interesting guest because his content covers like the whole spectrum of issues from politics, fitness, and even intersexual dynamics and dating. Before we start, Kyle, tell my audience more about yourself. Well, no, I appreciate the uh, interesting. Uh, I think a mutual friend of ours is Pete Quinones, and he says normally when people say interesting, that means uh, asshole. So, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, <laughs> that's how, that's what you have to be. Yeah, that's what you have to be these days if you want to be interesting. Because let's be honest, the nice guys like no one gives a fuck about. <laughs> no, 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 you're right, you're right. I do a couple different podcasts. I play in a band and um, I'm a husband and I, I just do lots and lots of stuff. I, I'm an automotive technician by career, by trade. And, um, you know, I've come from many generations of mechanics as well. I live in Southwestern Pennsylvania. So um, I host the In Liberty and Health podcast, uh, co-host Five Till Midnight and also co-host the show uh, Cognitive Vigilance. Now my show In Liberty and Health, you kind of said it there, covers pretty much most things, libertarian, foreign policy, political stuff and then um intersexual dynamics lots of fitness stuff as well um five till midnight is mostly me um well me and the guys from uh biting the bullet sam urban and adam nutter we just mostly kind of talk shit to one another for about an hour straight it's a really really good time we do that mondays at uh, 8 p.m and then on cognitive vigilance we mainly just talk about culture and dating and stuff like that and then uh, I don't know if I got it, but I do play in a band as well. I'm the guitar player in a band called A Common Crown. And uh, we released our newest single, Cry, about a month or so ago. And uh, it's probably one of my favorite songs I've ever written. So, uh, yeah, I wear a, uh, quite a few hats. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, there's like a lot to unpack there. It seems like you're just like doing like like everything across the spectrum. But like, I'm curious, before we uh, dive into like the political stuff, what type of genre like uh, is your band, like music genre? Do you guys uh, generally cover? So I say we're alternative metal. Um, my drummer kind of cringes that term because he says, as soon as you say metal, then like people just tune you out automatically. But, um, you know, you could probably classify us as hard rock, rock, metal. Um, some of our stuff's a little bit more like punk rock, and then some stuff's going to be a little bit heavier. So like Cry or one song, The Reckoning, those songs are pretty heavy. Uh, our song, If You Want, and Broken Glass are a little bit more punk. And then, you know, Blood on the Floor and Awake, which is kind of like our biggest song. Um, those two songs are a little bit more rock. So, I mean, it just kind of depends on what you're looking for. But yeah, I would say we mostly kind of fall under the umbrella of like rock and metal. Um, we do have a female singer, but um, one thing that I love about her is that she doesn't lead with like, you know, hey, I'm a woman, so check me out. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, she, she doesn't advertise us as like a, you know, overtly sexual thing. She's just yeah. incredibly talented. And uh, so are the rest of the members of the band. And hopefully I'm amongst that rank as well. <laughs> But let's talk about like the political stuff. Um, you said you're a libertarian, and I got into politics um through more or less like the Ron Paul libertarian route. This was man, like now it looked almost 20 years ago, actually, the Ron Paul's first campaign as a Republican, like presidential campaign. It, it was a very interesting experience because I not only got exposed to Republican politics, which um, spoiler alert is corrupt as hell, but <laughs> doesn't really need much explanation there. But also I got to interact with a lot of libertarians over the years and I've been involved in like the nonprofit space, um, in the libertarian sphere 
and even conservatism Inc. too for some time. And then nowadays I, I do a lot of freelance writing and obviously like this podcast, but um, I don't really identify as libertarian anymore, despite the fact that I do still hold libertarian positions, if you will, on a, a host of issues, whether it's like foreign policy or um, central banking and like downsizing the regulatory state. But uh, I'm curious though, what got you into libertarianism? So what got me into libertarianism is actually my older brother, funny enough. And this is probably back in like 2013, 14, maybe 15 at the very latest. Um, my brother was kind of like a raging leftist when um, we were young. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. And he used to listen to like the Amazing Atheists and the Young Turks. And he'd always show me those videos. And then the one day he said, oh, no, 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 I'm a libertarian. And I, I got like frustrated. I'm like, well, <laughs> don't talk to me about politics until you know correctly what you identify as. And then he started showing me guys like Milo Political fluidity. Yeah, yeah. Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, Stefan Molyneux, Eric July, Austin Peterson. And um, th- those were kind of like some of the first names in libertarianism that I heard of. And uh, I really liked the way that they looked at things. And then Gary Johnson campaign came around and... Uh, at the time, I didn't quite understand the uh, the necessity for like a radical message, but I really, really liked a lot of stuff about Gary Johnson, and I thought that he seemed much, much better than Trump and Hillary. But looking back at it now, I, I realize why people gravitated towards Trump. I mean, not only was he a Republican, and most people just don't think about third parties, yeah. but also the fact that at the time he seemed really, really radical. And we can, you know, debate the merits of his radicalness, you know, once he got elected yeah, and all that. Yeah, yeah. But but um Gary Johnson didn't have that same like, I'm going to, you know, put a boot on the throat of the establishment the same way that like Trump did. But Gary Johnson policy wise um just seemed very, very, you know, great in my opinion um i remember him explaining like oh well if we just you know <laughs> quit giving colleges all these you know all this money and all these guaranteed loans then the price for it would drop dramatically and he said it in like such a milk toast way but to me that that was all i needed but looking at the uh, political landscape now and kind of adjusting my thinking over time I've kind of come to the realization that you need somebody that's like a passionate messenger or maybe even yeah. like some kind of like a passionate elite to kind of bring this message to people so that way they follow. Because most people aren't going to be political junkies. Most people don't really care about politics on a deep level. They just kind of read the news, get the information that's given to them and run with that. And they're either on this team or the other team. So, you know, being in Southwestern Pennsylvania, I, I walk outside my house. And then there's Trump flags, you know, on my oh, morning walk Trump with my territory. dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And Good then, time. you know, if you drive five minutes either which way, there's farms everywhere. So this is a pretty rural yeah. area. So it's all Trump supporters. And like, if people look at my Twitter feed, you're going to see I mostly criticize right wingers because these are the people that I reach. I'm not going to reach far left Democrats, although I do yeah, follow like, not. yeah, I, I do follow like some outright communists and leftist dissident left wingers, not like, you know, the Joe Biden or AOC. Oh, yeah. Libtards. Yeah, yeah. Not, not those, but like yeah. more like Jimmy Dore, Misty Winston, um, some of the guys from Re- the Revolutionary Blackout Network. And it's funny how much like our positions as libertarians, dissident right wingers on foreign policy actually is like identical to theirs. And this is kind of why yeah, yeah, I, I like talking to those guys. Yeah. Yes, the gray zone guys are absolutely fantastic yeah. as well. So um, 
that, that's kind of like where I got all involved into politics around like 2014, 15. Um, mainly Stefan Molyneux was probably the guy who really... Oh, yeah. He's a character. Yeah. yeah he more solidified my worldview as a uh, anarcho-capitalist. Okay. So you identify more as an uh, ANCAP, would you say? Yes. It is fascinating. Um, say what you want about libertarianism. There's a lot of factionalism within that um, within the movement. And yes. um, what, the point you covered there about Gary Johnson is that my impression about Gary Johnson has always been that he is um, more of like the wonky, like Cato Institute type of libertarian that, as you said, has like a kind of milk toast message and he generally understands the issues. Like if there's one thing that's true about like Cato, really respectable what you saw. Because I'm not a big fan of that style of libertarianism, is that they know what they're talking about and they tend to like they can explain this stuff like on a very cerebral level. Unfortunately, we live in a political climate that is like increasingly turning idiocratic, if you will. It is looking like more like idiocracy, and you have to really like dumb down your message and you sometimes have to also the type of issues you're going to focus on are going to be very like visceral type of like caveman issues that um will appeal to the masses but yeah it is curious to meet people that um aren't like Ron Paul babies if you will because i felt that really outside of Ron Paul's um presidential runs um, I think that like the a lot of the hysteria from the mid 2010s did propel a good deal of people to towards libertarianism, and I believe Stefan Molyneux played a big role in that because how because he he was able to break out on YouTube, and he was also not only intellectual he he could be wonky, but he was able to touch a lot of taboo issues. Uh, ranging from race to immigration and just like general political correctness that I believe a good deal of libertarians, especially Cato types, tended to avoid, um, in my view. And that's what made him like particularly big because when you look at like the big libertarian names, uh, Dave Smith, Tom Woods, or I'd even add like Scott Horton to the mix. These guys, they usually pick like a few issues that are very controversial and they run with it. And um one person like of the that I always liked in that group was Tom Woods because he's always been politically incorrect. Like what am I the the one book that I think that made me very political that turned me from like a casual observer to like a hardcore political activist was the politically incorrect guide to American history that he authored. And from there, there was like no going back. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And amongst those guys that you named, they're definitely really, really good speakers and messengers. But like Stefan Molyneux, um, he was so well articulated and willing to have the conversations. And like you said, I really do believe that he played a large part in turning a lot of people into libertarians. 
Now, you know, people talk about like the white nationalist stuff and I kind of get where they're coming from, but I mean, he does have a point and people can rag on him all they like, but also you you, like can't downplay how significant his work on like peaceful parenting and stuff like that was like that stuff was absolutely amazing. And I mean, that's probably changed so many people's lives for the better. And he gets zero credit for that. All his people see is, oh, well, he said, you know, in Poland, it's all white and that the streets are clean. So everybody thinks that he's an asshole for saying that, but like. I mean, there is something to homogenous yeah, countries a, yeah. being more yeah. peaceful. And I'm not saying that yeah. like there should be zero, I don't know, like zero immigration forever. But I mean, like, you know, yeah. clearly there's issues here in America right now relating to immigration. And there definitely is something to multiculturalism when you have a bunch of people that don't share values or yeah. have wildly disparate IQs um, interacting together. Sometimes it does create bad outcomes. Like, uh, I've, I've been talking about the border stuff a little bit recently and like people, it, it's one of the things that I talk, that I do talk about a lot is like the China propaganda, the anti-China propaganda. And it's funny, my hesitation with going 100% on like the border stuff is that, um, I, I do think there is a little bit of manipulation here because I don't know if you've noticed this, but I notice every single time something happens, you know, the war in Israel or the war or the war in Gaza, but like you know, the Chinese balloon, the spy balloon that actually was literally a weather balloon by all accounts. What do people immediately say? Oh, well, it's Hamas terrorists coming over the border. Or, you know, when the spy yeah. balloon flew over America, oh, Chinese terrorists are coming through the border. It's just, you know, pick your group. And as soon as something happens with a group that we don't like, we're going to say they're flooding over the border. And yeah. could some of that be true? Yeah, maybe. But like, some, okay, so yeah, I, somewhat. Yeah. I I dug into the numbers on like the Chinese people coming across the border and there has been a little bit of a jump from 2021 until now, but the number of Chinese people is literally 0.75% of all border crossings and like, okay, could there be some nefarious actors in there? Sure. I I, I wouldn't doubt it. In fact, I'm I'm sure there are, but like, are we going to focus on the literal 0.75% of people who have a high IQ come from a, you know, a rich cultural background who actually share a lot of our values um, by today's standards, you know, you could say stuff about like Mao's China back then, but like China today is a pretty socially conservative capitalist economy at this point. In fact, they're probably more capitalist than the United States in all honesty, but like, um, are we going to worry about that 0.75%, which I think the number is literally like 23,000 people that came across the border. We're going to focus on like the 99% of lower IQ people who do not share our values, come from a very, very poor culture and a completely war-torn country run by cartels. Are we going to be more worried about them? I'd be worried about more worried about the people with a lower IQ that do not share our values that um, are coming from war-torn countries versus the, you know, the Chinese people that are coming across to the tune of less than 1%. But it's just a propaganda piece and generally yeah anytime you hear stuff about china it's typically coming from right wingers and my frustration with a lot of libertarians is that they something i shouldn't say a lot of libertarians but like a decent bit of libertarians and all republicans they just throw out any skepticism as soon as you hear the word china people's eyes gloss over and they just stop being skeptical and they assume that everything's true oh organ harvesting Uyghur genocide uh china taking over the world through our border uh invading africa with the one belt one road initiative and all this stuff um if people just have no idea what china's about and it, it's like we've been programmed to hate that country from the beginning but um once again it, to kind of come back to the full point is just like when it comes to the border stuff i do think 
that there's a lot of truth to it, but I think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is a political talking point that will probably be used to clamp down our necks a little bit more. Um, and as Ron Paul always said, you know, at a certain point, that board is probably not going to be used to keep people out. It's probably used to keep people. <laughs> so um, this is an interesting thing. I'm actually a pretty hardcore immigration restrictionist because I would say like one of my biggest influences was Pat Buchanan. So I'm uh, mostly in favor of like an immigration moratorium on both illegal and legal immigration. And here's a th- oh yeah, I would favor that as well. Yeah. So this is this is one interesting point you mentioned because there is a very political, uh, politicized dimension of border stuff. Because when you're talking about Chinese nationals, actually. And I'll, I'll talk about the China issue too, because I've got a nuanced take on there that will piss off both sides. But <laughs> so with respect to Chinese nationals, the quote unquote biggest threat, in my opinion, that they pose is actually through legal migration because um, there you see most of the cases of corporate espionage, military espionage, and a lot of um, trade secret theft from a lot of like visa holders, student visa holders, or just people that are just inserted as like fifth columns into the uh, U.S. Um, through just the exploitation of the U.S.'s retarded um, immigration laws and stuff like that. But like to me, that's just mostly a case of like you just do like a Chinese Exclusion Act of the 21st century and you solve that problem right there. Um, I'm more of a guy that's uh, supports like immigration restriction and kind of like sensible trade decoupling with China as opposed to like um this crazy stuff you see from the Republican Party where they're um they're essentially just trying to uh push for a military confrontation with it. I'm like more um I, I wouldn't say I'm like anti-China, but I am like skeptical because I just see it as like a another like alien culture. And I'm not and I don't think it's like uniquely like hostile. Just like I just see it as an alien culture. And like, if we're going to have like a state in the U S it should try to like preserve like the historic American nation as much as it can. But I'm not as obsessed as some people. Like there's like some, uh, I've seen a lot on the populist, right. That they go like full meal con on the issue. I tend to take more of like a realist perspective that, um, yeah, there's like issues of China with regards to how they have a lot of legal migrants in the U S emphasis on legal that effectively do a lot of um a lot of this like trade secret theft and uh, function as kind of like a fifth column in the US but that's like you just like um pose like stronger standards for immigration you sort that problem out and like whenever the US was like a non PC regime during the gilded age they had the Chinese exclusion act but that was for more labor grounds but like they still ha- like had that as a model as like a much more sensible model we had an immigration moratorium from the 1920s until the 1960s. And a lot of this stuff is just going back to these type of principles when we had decent leaders, whether it's like Grover Cleveland or like Calvin Coolidge. But those were like very sensible libertarian conservative leaders of their epoch. But yeah, there's a ton of hysteria. And you mentioned Hamas and stuff like that. Like the present political order, in my opinion, can be defined by the invade the world, invite the world type of ethos that like uh, the journalist Steve Saylor talks about where the our political order is centered around mass migration and mass interventionism abroad. And it works hand in hand because the neocon crowd just wants to regime change or topple over every freaking government that does it 
bow down to the strictures of the Washington, D.C., London, and Israel axis. So what happens is you get you turn these areas into war-torn areas, and naturally there's going to be a refugee crisis that ensues. And then we're like, um, the, the populations of the West are just told, like, you guys have to embrace all these migrants, blah, blah, blah. And it's a never-ending cycle of nonstop wars and demographic displacement, which benefits, like, all factions of the ruling class. Yeah, so I actually really like the point you made there. And uh, I actually don't disagree with um, limiting immigration as it is right now. Now, when it comes to, like, the China trade secret stuff, I'm not quite familiar on that. Um, but I, I, I've maybe i'm wrong here but i doubt that that's exclusive to just like chinese nationals maybe i'm wrong but uh, once again this is I'm a, a little bit out of my territory when it comes to that specific issue but um well, there's it, a lot of israeli nationals too okay uh, that's, yeah, but, that's, but, the, that's the non-pc part too okay yeah. well yeah, yeah, yeah so like one thing that i've posed out there and i think it's it's pretty true when you start to dig into it i do think that there is a lot of like israel money behind maybe not even israel money but like israel israeli influence that is getting a lot of this like china hysteria going to deflect from what they're actually doing so like if you go case by case by case pretty much everything that the populist right-wingers accuse china of doing israel is actually guilty of which is oh, a very big time exactly which is very very funny 100 oh, so um and oh we can go down that rabbit hole actually but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, continue. but i mean that that's that's um the one thing that i was trying to like bring people's attention to so like even like when it comes to, like the tiktok stuff people are saying oh well you they're spying on us through there. Okay, well, all your private data is actually stored on U.S. Ser servers in um, through a company called Oracle. And on top of that, like the only information that TikTok can get is uh, the info that you give them. And on top of that, yeah. um, the owners of TikTok are literally Singaporean. And yeah, do they have some business ties with, this, with you know the CPC? Okay, yes, but like it, it's not like that deep. The the owner Singaporean, and then I think even like the former owner was Singaporean as well. So I mean, like these are mostly people based in Singapore, and they direct a lot of the policy from Singapore. So it's it, it's just part of the reason why people are freaking out about this because it's competing with U.S. companies. Yeah, I guarantee you, if TikTok was a U.S. company, you wouldn't hear a fucking word about it. Yeah, but you know, you Israel would, yeah. has all the Israel has you know access to all this data. And they've been proven to use it before. You know, if you look back in the 1990s, um, I forget the book off the top of my head, but um, there was a Mossad company that was setting up phone, or you know, phones inside the White House that literally wiretapped Bill Clinton having sex, or phone sex with Monica Lewinsky. Um, now, when you talk about genocide of the you know Chinese Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province. <laughs> yeah, I never bought into that stuff either. <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's Adrian Zenz had basically published a paper. I, I forget what his exact title is, but he's from Germany. I think he's like a stenographer or something like that. But I, people can fact check me on that. But he published a paper that had a numerical error in it, where basically they said that the net IED inserts, which are basically pregnancy prevention devices, he miscalculated by a factor of like ten. And in order for his genocide claim to be true of the Uyghurs in China, um, they would have to be inserting something like, I think it was like 60 or 160 IEDs per day. And he actually had to come out and correct that on record. And now that they corrected that, they're still trying to say it's a cultural genocide. And like, look, are the Uyghur Muslims being treated well in China? No, but no, it's not yeah. a, it's not a literal genocide. There's yeah, no, not, or, yeah. yeah, there's no organ harvesting going on. And then um, one of the other claims that gets thrown out there a lot is China buying all the farmland. So if you actually look at a graph on like Statista, they did a pretty good analysis of this where like in 2014, 
a company in China bought this pork company and that like doubled their holding of American farmland. But the amount of American farmland they owned, if you look at the total amount of foreign owned farmland, they're like a fraction of 1%. Israel, Canada, France, Italy all own like dramatically more. Yeah, Israel was our political class. (laughs) Right. Well, and then to, to tie it back to a lot of the China stuff as well, like, People mostly freak out about China because they say that, like, oh, well, if they go after Taiwan, then they can nationalize the chips. Okay, well, let's talk about China imports billions, not millions, billions of dollars of food from the U.S. They're a net importer of food because they have deserts all over their country that they can't make their own, you know, they can't produce their own food to feed their population. Um, Part of the reason why they wanted the war in Ukraine to end is because they get grain from Ukraine. So for China to nationalize the chips in Taiwan would be such a stupid move on their behalf because what do you think they need more? The chips or food? <laughs> yeah. That, that, that question answers that right away. And then on top of that, some of our you know national security um, officials have said, oh yeah, we'll just bomb the uh, chip factories if they really go for Taiwan. So like, is it really about the chips or is it just because you want global domination? And one thing that people need to notice is that anytime there's a defense bill going out, Everybody will talk about, oh my God, look at all this aid going to Ukraine. And then sometimes people will say Gaza. Like, come on. It's not the, oh, the aid's not yeah. fucking going Tardy, to Gaza. Tard- yeah. Yeah. That was just cringeworthy. And, and then you can find the picture of him wearing a yarmulke touching the wall. And look, I'm not like a big JQ guy, but like there should be some questions asked about dual citizenship yeah. and then how much these people just will not say a word about what's going on in Israel. So once again, is there some giant Jewish conspiracy? I don't know. But there's definitely a lot of coincidences that just so happen yeah. to have just so happen yeah. to have to do with that yeah. little country over in the Middle East, and it just so happens that they pay yeah, off total a lot of money Democrats. Yeah, and then a lot of Republicans also fall in line as well. So, like the top three recipients have APAC money, and this actually just changed recently. Number one is Joe Biden. Number two is actually now Bob Menendez, and number three was Hillary Clinton. I believe just over the last couple of months, Bob Menendez was uh, put oh, up. Oh, big! Yeah, he uh, that dude is next to Chuck Schumer. I'd say he's like the second like worst freaking senator, like of like the Democrats, in my opinion. Like that guy is a neocon hack, like to the extreme. Find any foreign policy issue, Bob Menendez is like there. Yeah, actually, one thing too, right? Right wingers like the troll right wingers on with respect to China and Israel is the fact that Israel has a history of like routinely um, stealing U.S. military tech to later resell it to China. Yep. In fact, I think it was like two years ago or. Israel's like security services should bet busted a bunch of like Israeli nationals that were like selling like US missile tech to China. That's like routinely happens. Nobody talks about that. And actually, curiously, China has a pretty strong amount of influence. This is prior to October 7th because it's changed a lot now. Um, like in Israel, and they're um they've been quite attached at the hip and I remember one ex-Mossad guy, um, he said, like, I think about like a year or two ago that Israel needs to sit out the China, uh, US, like Cold War, if you will, because like he says, like, this is like of no interest to us. But yeah, the Israel fetish is something that I've always been skeptical of. 
even when I started out in politics, I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? Then I delve deeper that thanks to people like Scott Horton, uh, Norm Finkelstein, and, and, and the, that crowd, and even like pe- more controversial people like Kevin McDonald, who is just like totally canceled for just pointing out pattern recognition. But, right. Noticing. <laughs> yeah, noticing. Yeah. But like, yes, the GOP. I've worked in it for a while, and I've never really um, liked a lot of that stuff they've done with the Israel and just the, the pro-establishment stuff. And even with the Trump movement, and just going back, like how I was talking about, briefly talking about the rabbit hole, is that I have the vague impression that a good deal of the populist right, there is like the signs of some type of Israeli like Zionist op going on there because if you look at like that whole national conservatism movement that's pushed by the that guy Yoram Hazoni like he's like literally an Israeli like American dual national a lot of this stuff is just focused on like China hawkishness and even like some Iran hawkishness as well as sprinkled in. Right. Well, the the Iran stuff is mostly because that's Israel's greatest enemy, essentially. Yeah, big time, yeah. Like, yeah, when you start looking, the same deal with the Iran stuff. It's like, how, how do we think Iran's a threat? Like, their GDP is literally like two percent of ours, and on top of that, like leaving the Iran deal actually made them much more much more likely to develop a nuke. And I mean, the idea we've been hearing for thirty years that they're you know weeks, months, years, yeah, two weeks away from yeah, a nuke. Yeah, yeah. there was a term called a Friedman unit they coined back in like nineteen ninety because there was a certain guy named with the last name Friedman that kept saying Iran's six months away from building a nuke. But like in order for them to build a nuke, they have a civilian nuclear program that's enriching uranium about 60% right now. I think 60 or 63%. In order for them to build a nuke, they would need to enrich uranium at like 93%. And the only reason why they started enriching at 63% was after actually leaving the Iran deal, which actually helped guarantee that they wouldn't build a nuke. And that was the one good thing that Obama did was get us into the Iran deal to make sure that like, okay, well, we're going to lift sanctions off Iran we're going to start to build relations. And then like the entire time, Iran has always pretty much said like, hey, you guys come inspect it. Please just leave us alone. And then what happens? Israel's over there poisoning, assassinating, and destroy, you know, killing all sorts of Iranian officials. And then, you know, people always say Trump was some kind of anti-war dove. Okay, well, he assassinated Soleimani. He committed to, he attempted a coup in Venezuela, um, killed more people via drone strikes than Obama, or than Obama in four years um, than Obama did in eight years. You could look up the graphs on air wars on this. And, you know, vetoing the ending the war in Yemen. And then, you know, at least he was honest about a lot of this shit. But still, it's not like he was some dove. Yeah. He was also pretty hawkish on Russia, too. Yeah. Contrary well, to popular that's, belief. That's the thing. And this is yeah. why I think, like, the Beijing Biden and the Russiagate stuff is, like, a very, very clever ploy put out more than likely by our military industrial complex to basically make each side hate both, you know, their number one enemies because um, in 2012 with the Pivot to Asia executed by Obama, Hillary Clinton, and all the worst Democrats you could possibly imagine, um, they listed China as the number one threat, Russia's number two, and I think it was either Iran or North Korea as number three. And that's, they consider that like the new axis of evil. Now, what happened when Speaker Mike Johnson got in? We have a new axis of evil. <laughs> China, Russia, 
North Korea and Iran. That's that's their axis of evil. And I mean, like even some of the '90s neocons were talking about China back then. Um, and, and you know, part of the pivot to Asia was basically um, Obama and you know his whole administration saying that like, okay, we're done with terror wars. The next century is going to be defined by great power struggles. Great power, yeah, exactly. And that's what it's all been about. So now there's been the largest the largest arms buildup around Russia and China since World War II. So like, just in the last couple of years under the Biden administration, which supposedly owned by China, which is just absolutely hysterical on his face. Uh, Kamal Harris went over to the Philippines and gave arms guarantees and defense guarantees, basically telling the Philippines, hey, if China fucks around Second, second Thomas Shoal, which are some reefs right off the coast of the Philippines that's disputed by the Philippines and China, um, we will go to war with China if they fuck around in those reefs. Um, we've been training Taiwanese troops in Detroit, um, or not Detroit, but Michigan. There were recently, huh. I think as of like last week or a week ago, there were troops dispatched uh, off the coast of China, like four miles away from a major city. Um, you know, a lot of these arms deals have also had a lot of just giving arms to Taiwan. We sail warships through the Taiwan Strait to the tune of one or two a month. Uh, there's always, you know, airships flying over there. And then like, you'll see these stories on Twitter occasionally of saying, oh, Chinese aircraft maneuvering dangerously in the, in the South China Sea. It's like, well, it's, that's their, sphere of influence. Like, that's their area. We're, like the yeah. Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait is only about ninety miles wide, and it's about eight thousand yeah, miles away. Sphere of influence, man. Like, yeah, yeah like that's, I, that's not our territory. So how can they be navigating dangerously when we're in their fucking territory? That'd be like China if they were flying a you know a, a ship in the uh, or flying Gulf an aircraft Mexico, in yeah. the Gulf of Mexico. Would we? You know, <laughs> we would nuke Beijing if they did that. But yeah. we're allowed to do it. That's just what Ron Paul points out. That's what he points out, like routine, uh, like routinely. Yeah, like uh, the Iran stuff. Th- this is one thing. Um, I will say this. Um, despite being like America first, quote unquote. The one thing I do fear of a potential uh, Trump uh, reelection is that there is, if you look at just the money and like the people that have embedded themselves in like the Trump movement. There is a very fanatic, yeah, Jared Kushner, chief among them. But even like in some of these like lesser known NGOs and other people that will staff like his administration, there is this fanatic subsect of Zionism that's clearly gained steam there. That's very like hawkish on Iran. Because even like if you read like stuff on like the Bush era, Bush like ultimately did not pull the trigger on Iran, despite all these like crazy hawks, because he wasn't he wasn't like a Zionist to his core, but like Trump and Biden, yeah. especially Biden, Biden, um, you yeah, know, genocide also, Joe. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> genocide Joe, genocide Joe's cabinet has even said like, wow, like the Israel issue is the one that Joe Biden is most personally invested in. So, um, there's an old video clip that I always laugh every single time I think about it. I'll do my best Joe Biden impression, but he was uh, <laughs> he was talking yeah. about he was like, yeah, if I were a Jew, I'd be a Zionist. But then my dad told me I did not need to be a Jew to be a Zionist. So I am. The state of Israel <laughs> is essential for Jews worldwide. <laughs> Just like <laughs> the perfect Joe Biden cadence. So yeah, there's a video of him yeah. saying that. And then he said before that, like, hey, if the state of Israel didn't exist, then we would have to make one. And I, a lot of people are saying, oh my God, this cost him so much of his base. Like I, a lot of his cabinet is all Zionist too. And then like people were surprised about Fetterman yeah, coming 100. out. Yeah, people were surprised about Fetterman coming out being a Zionist. If you listen to the debates, you knew exactly who he was. He is a Zionist neoliberal China hawk. There there was virtually no difference between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. 
they agree on Israel. They agree on transing the kids. They ad- they agree on um, guns. They agree on the vaccine stuff. And, and there was no difference between those two candidates. And John Fetterman won because he was simply more relatable because he looked like my uncle that used to work at the steel mill and is now an un- unemployed drinking Miller High Life or something like that. That's that's the reason why a lot of people voted for him here in Pennsylvania. But then, like, people were surprised that he wasn't some like woke lib. No, he's a neoliberal who will do anything for APAC money and wants to you know fight a war with China and Russia. He's a neoliberal, and people are like surprised about it. And then all the right wingers are clapping him. I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, this is your enemy. So I have noticed this, especially in the Senate level, that if you're like a Democrat that's like in either of like the left coast or like like any like mid-Atlantic state, whatever, you're going to be a Zionist. That's just like, I'm not even talking about the Republican Party because that's just like a fully owned like zionist like entity at this point but like for democrats the anti-israel stuff is a relatively new phenomenon that's really taking place more in the house than anything and even a few members that that are a little anti-zionist but i mean like even like rashida talib and i don't know some of the other ones from the squad or whatever yeah yeah they're not like very they, they would probably still send money over there and they just kind of pay like some very, very light platitudes. They're anti-Assad being anti-Assad too. Yeah. It's actually, it's actually the funny thing. I, I recently wrote an article about that um, at Big League Politics um, exposing Rashida Tlaib. Uh, she like always uh, pushing for regime change against um, Assad in Syria, which is hilarious because she's literally opposing like one of the few states that's actually like supported the Palestinian people and yeah, she's become like effectively a useful idiot for the um, American British Zionist triumvirate. But that's how like that is like really the embodiment of the clown world USA po- political climate we live in. Yeah, I, I I do think that for example the Trump movement, the biggest flaw it has is that it has been fully captured by Zionist money. And I do think that there is a very strong possibility that the U.S. will um, get in um, in, t- in a type of like military conflict under his watch because I think that like there is a hysteria among the political class that um, they know that the U.S. empire is like slowly like collapsing. And I think they want to go out with a bang and that bang is probably going to be like trying to get into the stir some crap with like Iran or even like um some lesser like countries like Venezuela or um Cuba as well because a lot of um the another powerful lobby in the GOP is like the Cuban lobby which is also basically like a Zionist lobby because every like hardcore Cuban Republican I've interacted with to um they're all Sanhedrin slaves. They're just totally like on the Zionist program. So I I think I do think that um there are some people like in like the GOP wing of the national security establishment that are just freaking out at the fact that of uh, like a, a multipolar world and they want to like if they if they if the US is gonna like lose influence on like the world stage, they want to like do so in a way they go out with a bang. 
Yeah, and this is the thing about Trump is that like the most frustrating part is that I think he made a lot of Republicans and dissident people comfortable because they thought yes. they had a, they thought that they had a guy in him. But like, if you're just objective about the reality of things, he is not your guy. He is not your friend. He is your enemy. And yes, he is the lesser of two evils. I'll be the first one to say that. But yeah, Trump I agree with does. That. Yeah, Trump does not give a fuck about any single one of us when it comes to like the trade war stuff. That affected Americans to the tune of 94% of the tariffs fell back on Americans. If, you know, the, we could talk about the vaccine stuff. He still doesn't think he did anything wrong in 2020. And that's absolutely absurd. And, you know, I worked with at one point at my last job, one of the biggest donors to Trump in Pennsylvania. And, you know, he's a blue collar mechanic, just like me. He worked at that shop for a now at this point probably like 33 years i want to say so i mean he's just like a regular average everyday joe dude you know he drives a denali truck um and you know works on cars for a living and uh, i remember him telling me that he got a card that said hey you're one of you know trump's biggest donors in pennsylvania but you know he was all about the mask mandates well, i shouldn't say the mask mandates but like he was all about oh wear your mask you know you should get the vaccine and all this other stuff like people thought that all the right wing was like oh so good on covid but believe me if you worked a blue collar job you more than likely saw these people fell right in line with whatever was passed their way and it, it's not, i'm not like faulting them for this this is just a human thing right if you're not aware about this stuff if you don't pay attention then whatever comes across your desk is just what it is. And um, the time's coming up soon. Right, right, right. Well, I can't wait for the, uh, I think it's March 8th. I posted a status on Facebook on March 8th of 2020, and I said, I'm not scared of the coronavirus. And (laughs) a couple comments down, my wife said, was this necessary? Like at the time of posting it and looking back at it now, I'm like, yes, yes, it was. Because you know what? I called it right from the beginning. I said, I think this thing's way overblown. I remember even like Stefan Molyneux, to bring it back to a name that we're talking about earlier, he was really freaked out about it. And like, look, I get it. The dude had cancer. He recovered. He has a little bit more reason to be freaked out about it. But I mean, he even blew it up a decent bit and said like, oh my God, look, this is going to be so bad. And like I said, I'm not faulting him, but he reasonably got off on the wrong foot where, you know, I I had no reason and I had nothing other than my own intuition to say that like, hey, I thought this was going to be way blown out of proportion, and it absolutely was. Yeah, to be honest, if you're going to, um, and this goes back to the open borders thing too, you have like a more, if you're going to be like concerned about health issues and movement of people, you should be more uh, cons- uh, more worried about mass third world migration bringing in medieval diseases to like, to like the first world at this juncture. I remember I, I lived in Chile for like two years and they had a lot of mass migration, which actually was like curiously NGO driven um, after I dug um, deeper into that from countries like Haiti. And for the first time in like a century, this is like 2014, 2016-ish, they had like cases of leprosy coming back. Like, yeah, and it's like, guys, like, I'm more worried. I'm not worried about novel viruses more so than like already like well established like diseases and ailments that have not been eradicated in a lot parts of the globe and that will po- could possibly be brought back here if we have like this present uh, mass migration regime intact. I initially was kind of freaked out by COVID, but then when I dug deeper into it, yeah, like you eventually figured out, yeah, this is this is hysteria and this is just like a way to try to assert control 
over people. And like to me, um, the all those lockdowns and everything was like the biggest cause, the biggest transfer of wealth and consolidation of corporate power yes. I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, totally clown world era of our like our history. And I think, yeah, looking back, like historians will be like scratching their heads, like thinking, what the hell did like the like the ruling classes of the West and many other governments worldwide, what the hell were they doing? But yeah. Yeah. So one person that I like a lot um is Lane Norton and he's more of like a fitness person. Yes, he's great. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely love Lane. And um I, I kind of struggle with the part when it starts coming to like the vaccine stuff. Part of me People get a little conspiratorial and like, look, I've I've known probably well over a hundred people who t- took the vaccine. I didn't because I had COVID twice. Um, my wife had it. Neither of us got COVID. And my wife has a has a blood clotting disorder. And I actually found a study that um suggests like, hey, if you take the vaccine, like if you have this specific blood clotting disorder, then like it could get really bad. So like, there were very very good reasons for us not to take it. And um, she also pretty much had to leave her job because they were going to make her get it. So. It wasn't like I went unaffected by this stuff, but like when people get on the far end of the conspiratorial side saying like this population control, I get it because like it was so heavily pushed. But at the same time, if it is, it's doing a pretty bad job because like I I just know way too many people personally that saw no issues. But I, I literally think what happened was that they tried to make a vaccine. And there might have been some manipulative bad actors behind the scenes, but really what it turned out to be is just like you know, a, a shitty vaccine that worked for maybe like a week or two and then fades away. And then for like younger people, it does raise your risk for myocarditis. But my understanding and Lane has said this, that like, okay, for younger people, um, if you got COVID, you do have a higher risk of myocarditis. And the risk of getting myocarditis from COVID was higher than that of the vaccine. Now, do I believe that? I don't know. I would need to see some research on it. Um, I did some research personally, and I came to a different conclusion, but I would have to look at the papers again, because there are papers actually on myocarditis incidents and um, the vaccine stuff. So like people say, oh, well, you know, all the science spot paid for. No, not really. Believe me, there is good science and reliable science out there. You just have to be patient, willing to you know dig through stuff and actually have like time to read stuff. But um, he says that like they were trying to build the ship as they were going. I, I think Anthony Fauci was playing politics and he liked the idea of being elected to somewhat of a God in the people's eyes. And that kind of led to a lot of bad stuff. And, um, now he kind of wiped his hands clean and, um, you know, my contribution to the whole uh, taking down the COVID regime would be I'd be willing to pay for one meal a day for Anthony Fauci to spend the rest of his life in prison, or um, yeah, you know, to, yeah. to, to buy to buy some rope. And I won't, le- I won't, le- you know, go to the conclusion of that. But I think you guys can understand where I'm coming <laughs> yeah. from. And I'm, I'm against the death penalty, but um, it, it, there are some situations where I'd be like, okay, well, <laughs> I wouldn't particularly lose sleep over that. But yeah, when it comes to, like the COVID stuff. It was definitely like the greatest human rights violation that we've seen in the last, you know, however long. But, you know, I, I don't want to throw away the truth that may not be sexy. Yeah, j- just to get yeah, clicks for like and advance eyes. a political, political agenda. Yeah. Yes. I'm not a big uh, fan of um, putting out content just to prove your like ideological narrative or like agenda. Yes. Like, uh. yes. And you see this all 
Um, people care much more about a narrative than they do about the truth. And that shit drives me nuts. So, I mean, like, the, I could be way, way bigger if I just chose to carry water for Trump and say, fuck seed oils and the vaccine's going to kill you if you so much as sniff it. And uh, what are some other winning talk points? Oh, yeah, get a, um, you know, fuck 50 girls, earn $80,000 a year, and your life would be problem free. But no, nah, dude, I'm, I'm a regular dude just like you. <laughs> you know, I eat shit sleep all the same. I live in a blue collar town, working a blue collar job. And I try to do the best that I can. I try to give people information so that way they can hopefully do better than they are doing right now. But I'm not here to like make people be better people. I'm here to just hopefully give you useful information to help your outlook on the world or maybe improve your life through, you know, red pill praxeology, health and fitness stuff, or, you know, understanding geopolitical issues. That's like my contribution. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have a cult like following. I'm no bullshit. I hate bullshit. And I'm going to give it to people straight. And I, if you follow Ryan Stone, he's one of my favorite people. Oh, I, lo- I love Ryan Stone. Yeah. yeah he's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah. He, he always says that he's a character. Yeah. He says you have to hate your audience just a little bit. And I completely understand that because I don't want to be caught captured by my audience. I want them to be able to think critically and tell me if I'm wrong, but I also want to be able to tell them the truth no matter what. So like my followers battle me all the time about the seed oils and artificial sweetener stuff, but I'm like, look, you guys are wrong. The human randomized controlled trials and the human evidence is on my side. Whether you guys like it or not, I don't care. I'm going to give that to you. And if you still want to avoid seed oils on artificial sweeteners, that's on you. Knock yourself out. Yeah, I didn't tell you to do that. Yeah, I I avoid a lot of that stuff. But like, yeah, audience capture is very much real. And as like a creator, you do have like a kind of like responsibility to try to put out not only good content, but like actual like factual content, especially in a time where so much disinformation like abounds like that's how you could set yourself apart but like turning yourself into like a cheap grifter you're just like another like freaking number of like people doing the same crap and like that's it's just like something that doesn't fly with me whatsoever i'm not, you mentioned red pill stuff so like let's delve into that because i actually think this type of stuff gets people more triggered in my opinion, than like political stuff these days. And when you talk like intersexual dynamics and whatnot, people, uh, that stuff will get anybody riled up. Even like when you go to like a normie hangout, like forget like talking about the 2024 election. If you want to talk about like the rules between the sexes, man, you'll be in for some fireworks there. Yeah, I've definitely cooked a few, uh, got a few people pretty angry. It looks like one of my uh, more well-known uh, Twitter spats was uh, Ace Arkist, who's on like my perma block list right now. <laughs> um, and like, I, I don't think he's a bad dude. I don't, but I think he's just terminally online. And um, I, I oh, many such rest- cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I blocked a lot of those libertarians that are like that. And like, I'm sure they're fine people, but look, I just don't want to engage with you guys anymore. You get 21 questions and they always lead you back to an age of consent or like you didn't read enough libertarian literature. And I, I've said oh, it like a million God. times now, I am not the perfect fucking libertarian. I've not read every single piece of libertarian literature. In fact, I've listened Ain't to good. one libertarian auto audio <laughs> I'm a very just you know, facts on the ground kind of guy and calling things as I see it. So like, this is why red pill really attracted me because red pill is just descriptors. This is not prescription. This prescription. Is prescription. Yeah. It's not pre- yeah. Contrary to popular belief. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. like when people hear red pill, they think, Oh, these red pill guys say this, these red pill guys say that. Okay. Well, yeah, you have to be a high value man. Yeah, right. Yeah. Who are you talking about? <laughs> 
Where did you read this? Do you know what red pill is outside of Pearl, Fresh and Fit, and Andrew Tate? And most people would tell you at that point, <laughs> no. Yeah. It, it's literally just, hey, the, we're going to talk about you know, useful sayings, mental models, and data sets that are going to make your life better. So like the one that's pretty popular that a lot of people talk about is she's not yours, it's just your turn. Okay, well, what does that mean? If it doesn't necessarily no mean one. Right. Well, there you go. That's that's a really, really good way to put it though. Like the soulmate myth, that kind of plays into yeah. that as well. So like she's not yours, it's just your turn. The mental model there is that like if you understand that your woman can leave you at any time, anywhere for any reason, and women always reserve the right to change their mind no matter what, then that will keep you of the mind that like, hey, I have to maintain myself as a very attractive guy who works his ass off and is a desirable guy to other women and the woman that I'm currently with. Um, and it's also going to put you in the perspective that like, if she can leave at any time, then I have to enjoy every single moment that I have with this woman because the ball's in her court because she can leave. She's an autonomous person that I do not own. So therefore I get, I should enjoy all these moments that I have with this person as much as possible. Um, that's like one that I've thought about a lot recently and like people get a little bit too blackpilled about some stuff. So like, you know, obviously women like taller guys, but like there's some guys that get like so focused on like six foot tall, six pack abs, six well, figures. Yeah, six figures. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. yeah the the high sixes. value man. Oh God. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the high value, some guys just like freak out about this stuff. But I guarantee if you walk up to any girl on the street and ask her what six foot is, she has no fucking clue. If you tell her you're six foot, yeah, she's like, no, yeah, no, you're no, taller no. than me. You must be six foot. Yeah. Oh, even like I, I can tell you so many stories because um I got into red pill stuff through like doing pickup. I've been doing like pickup more or less since like 2011. Not like the most consistent, but I I've been doing it uh, like cold approaching that stuff for a while. You'll see so many cases, man. Like broke DJ skateboarder, yoga instructor, surfer guy that's cleaning up like with pretty attractive. Women, women, um, as opposed, and then like you'll f- see on the other hand, I'm in Austin right now. You'll see these guys, these like tech bro guys making high six figures, some even like close to seven figures that are like pretty well put together that can't get girls to save their lives, man. Like, yeah, well, it's those guys like choose to max out one area, so like yeah. a lot of the MGTOW and Black Hill got Black Pill, Black Kill, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but like the black pill guys and the looks maxers will always say, oh, well, it's just all about oh. looks. Well, okay. So yeah. Looks oh my God. Looks matter. Matter. Oh my God. Those, yeah, but uh, like you don't want to max out in any one area. You should be not necessarily balanced, yeah. but like it you need like to an find, MMA fighter. Yeah. You need to find what you're good at and, you know, focus there, but also realize like, Hey, if you have lacking parts, you need to bring that up too. So like, yeah. Big time. Know, yeah. As a guy, you know, if you know that women like guys who look good, then okay. Well, what's that tell you? That tells you that, hey, I need to go to the gym. And like my message here is that like you don't have to kill yourself either. Like if you go to the gym two, three days a week and have like you're you know, fine. A, a yeah. good low intensity steady state cardio routine, you're probably gonna be fine. And like I looked up the stats on like the average dude. He's like five nine, two hundred pounds, can't lift more than yeah. like can't deadlift more than like two hundred fifty pounds. Like a lot of the numbers and stuff when it comes to just average. It's not hard for any guy out there to just be a little bit better than that. And like, is that going to skyrocket your chance with women? No, but it's definitely going to make it a lot better. So like, you won't be invisible for sure. Exactly. So like, and you know, if you walk around confidently, okay, well, there's another, you know, feather in the cap. There's just so many little things that you could do that will make you just more noticeable and different than other guys. And like you said, cold approaching. 
cold approaching, you're already setting yourself out from the rest of the guys because what's everybody do? My phone's downstairs, but you know, they're doing this pretty much at all times, anytime they're walking around anywhere. So, I mean, that alone is going to get their attention. So, like, I've been out of the dating game now for about five years because I've been with my wife now for five years. Okay. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But, um, so like when it comes to the marriage stuff as well, red pill doesn't tell you not to get married. It says marriage <laughs> yeah. is a bad deal yeah. for men. There is no should. It's just, Hey, if we look at the way that Western, you know, civilization right now is structured, it's very gynocentric. We tend to, you know, sacrifice men to raise women up. You know, you are looked at as a guy is very disposable in Western society today because, you know, oh, well, the feminine experience is the correct. That's kind of the definition of a gynocentric society is that they look at the feminine experience as the correct experience. Um, and Warren, it wasn't Warren Farrell, but uh, a lot of people say that, you know, now we raise guys, defective girls. So this is why you see guys throwing temper tantrums on TikTok and doing all this other stuff and crying for a camera. Like, dude, nobody cares. No, no woman is going to fuck you because you're crying on camera. In fact, you probably <laughs> yeah. just lost a lot of potential pussy because you chose to cry yeah, on camera. Yeah, that, that is like a Sahara, like, like drying up, like the like the pussy, like the Sahara Desert moment, man. Like yeah. doing that shit, like, oh, one hundred percent. So I like uh, Rich Cooper saying, and like my red pill journey was kind of like I've been listening to YouTube, you know, stuff just for years. So like one of the first people that really, 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 really got into was like Elliot Hulse and then Stefan Molyneux. Those were oh, like two. Yeah, Elliot Hulse is fantastic. And then um, eventually Entrepreneurs and Cars came up on my uh, on my YouTube feed. And he originally just did like interviews with entrepreneurs and cars. And then eventually he started, you know, going into more like red pill stuff. And then my, you know, journey was there from like Rich, Rolo, and then Ryan. And then now I'm like friends with all those guys. So, you know, I'm, I talked to Rolo. I talked to Ryan a lot. And then, you know, you know, Nuclear Cadillo, me and him are pretty tight. So like all the guys. Yeah, he's are great. Sp- oh, yeah. Nuclear. I met him nu- in person too. Oh, really? Nice. Twice. Yeah, I, yeah. I would love to go down to Texas. There, I have so many friends down in Texas right now. Buck, Buck Johnson, Tommy Sam. Oh, I've also met him too. He's fantastic. Like yeah. great guy. Yeah. He's on point. Yeah, oh, Buck is absolutely fantastic. But like, all the, I have so many friends down in Texas that I would just love to make it down there sometime to hang out with everybody. And um, but yeah, like I'm friends with all the Red Pill creators now, and they're all just like chill, really, really good dudes. And like, people can throw shit at those Red Pill guys all day, every day. But like, if you talk to them one on one, they're going to treat you. Pretty reasonably. Like the shit you see on Twitter, it's fucking Twitter. It's a war zone. People go yeah, there so, and yeah. just like fire off thoughts and opinions all the time. Um, it, it's just, it just is what it is. But like if you engage these people one on one, they're really, really good people. And like uh one funny thing was uh the Rolo tweet that went viral, the vasectomy tweet. And what oh, nobody yeah, was able to yeah, yeah. what nobody was able to parse out is that he didn't say anywhere in the tweet, you should do this. Spirit. Like, there's no short prescription. Exactly. And that's what people can never separate. They can't just yeah, take information. Thought. And that's yeah. like, you know, when I tell people, hey, artificial sweeteners, seed oils aren't bad for you, then people think, oh, well, why are you telling me this? Um, if Rolo tells you that, hey, if you get a vasectomy in your 20s, then you can't get baby trapped. People think that, oh, well, you're telling me to go get trans surgery? No, it's just if you want to avoid all potential pitfalls, that may cost you a lot of money in the short term or long term, then getting a vasectomy will actually keep you from being baby trapped and having to spend a lot of money in your 20s. Should you do that? That's up to you. 
You yeah, decide. It's up to you. Yeah. No one is telling you to go get a vasectomy. And if they are, well, I, I'd be very, very skeptical of anyone telling me that. But like, once again, to, to bring it back to Red Pill stuff, is that like, I always like just getting the information and, you know, you get handed the Chilton manuals, Ryan says, like, what can I do with this? So, like, for me, I live with my wife, you know, for a few years and I recognize that she's a great compliment to my life. So, okay, so we decided to get married and then we're going to have a family. That was my decision. What I chose to do with my life may not work for you, may not work for anybody else. And I wouldn't tell anybody that, you know, if you just follow these five steps, the fourth one will surprise you, then you'll get your dream wife. Because like what my experience was is going to be completely different than other people. Like I didn't have a horrible, you know, time growing up, but it was pretty rough. Um, But I guess like my Batman origin story for Red Pill stuff was uh, I remember in 2017 or late 2016, I had a girlfriend and I had listened to like red pill stuff, but it didn't really like sink in for me. So I had a best friend at the time who had lied to my girlfriend at the time and said that I was cheating on her with a girl that everybody knew that I wasn't. And things just really blew up and really, really went south. And that was like my first time in my adult life getting zeroed out. And that was when I decided, okay, well, and now I should start taking fitness a little bit more seriously. Now I should start, you know, figuring out ways to network and really make myself a more like valuable person to my community at large. And that's why I started my first band. And now I'm, you know, well entrenched in the music scene around here. And um, it was for the best. And that was when I first started listening to like a lot of Red Pill content because I got zeroed out and I need to kind of figure out a better way to look at the world. And I mean, even like when I was in middle school and stuff like that. So I had a relationship when I was in late middle school, early high school that was very, very rough for me. And, you know, that kind of changed the way that I looked at women, but didn't quite change it enough. But even like when I was in middle school and high school, just the way that I saw that like men got treated versus how women got treated that really made me think like, oh, there is a lot going on here that just like isn't right. And the world isn't what they tell you, you know, the infamous day, but like, you know, your teachers, your mom, and, you know, most of society writ large is telling you it's it's not that way. And uh, that's kind of what led me eventually down the red pill hole. And then now, you know, so I started my podcast in October, 2021, I had, um, I'd always kind of promoted it because like, once again, these are just good tools to use. So like the iron rule of Tomasi, I think it's number three where, um, he talks about spinning plates. Um, spinning plates doesn't mean fucking anything on two legs. Spinning yeah, plates means- that, that's a big misconception. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So like spinning yeah. plates, when people think about that, they're like, oh, well, you're just telling guys to sleep with women or like, you know, any woman that makes you wait for sex, sex is never worth the wait. Um, it's not about the fact that like you should fuck her as soon as you meet her. <laughs> it's about determining genuine desire. desire like if yeah. the woman really wants to be you with and stuff you. like that. Right. Yeah. And, and then spinning plates is also like getting good social skills because, you know, nowadays with Facebook and social media, we don't have the same face-to-face interactions like we always used to. So it's probably good for you to experience a lot of women. And that doesn't mean having sex with them. That means just going out and enjoying their presence and understanding how to interact with the opposite sex in a way that is most productive for you. That's what spinning plates is. It's just, yeah. you know, basically, can you become a more social, be a, you know, a more sociable, charming person that people want to be around? And if you do that, not only is it going to have better results for your relationship, but it's also going to help you, you know, be a better person to like work with and be around overall. So like, Rick, well, it's just basically a set of tools that you can use to make your life better or 
if you really want to, you can make your life a lot, a lot worse. It's just up to you. Well, yeah, 100%. On the spinning plates part, uh, these days, I tend to be doing more social circle game where I have a lot more female friends that I don't really go after like sexually, like initially. And um, I'm mostly just focusing on being more social because I um, I went through more of like a hardcore like pickup cold approach phase. And I still do a lot of cold approaching. But the point is, when it comes to like getting good at this stuff, you have to really boost your social skills in general. You have to see it as being more like social. And then like the relationships, the casual encounters, friendships or whatever is what follows after that. Because people tend to put the cart before the horse. But yeah, um, there's been a lot of misconceptions about the red pill. And I think the the primary thing um, I've noticed over the years is mostly people don't get it. It's really descriptive, not prescriptive. Because a lot of the red pill's origins too, um, and this goes back to pickup, is that most guys that um done pickup but don't know about the theory is that they would just trade notes. They would notice a lot of observations, whether like whether it's during their colder approaches or when they're managing like some type of casual relationship rotation or an LTR. They would notice a lot of patterns, and they would share these patterns in the forums, like the SoSwab forums yes. that uh, Rolo talks about. Like that's the thing that I feel is lost on a lot of people. But there's a lot of red meat content. Like ultimately, it's a sign of our epoch that. Uh, people don't like to talk to them about the nuances or read the full content. And instead, they want to go for the clickbait stuff. They want to go for the e blood sports to dunk on, um, to do like a reaction video against like Rolo or Fresh and Fit or whatever. But um, yeah, I still like, um, despite all the drama, I like the red pill stuff because you get to meet very interesting people like yourself that have like very uh, similar hobbies and overlapping interests because. These days, there's mass atomization, as you mentioned, with respect to everybody being um, behind a screen or whatever. So you really can't build genuine uh, uh, relationships like before. We're bowling alone, if you will, to quote the title of the book by Robert Putnam because of this collapse in civil society. So you have to find something. And the Red Pill has helped a lot, actually, for um, uh, expanding my network and meeting interesting people. Yeah, absolutely. And... All the people that I've worked with in the red pill space have just always been very, very good to me and they've promoted the shit out of me. And I mean, I'm just beyond grateful for that. Like I asked Rolo to play my band single cry at the end of his stream. And I'm like, Hey man, I know this is like a big ask. And he's like, yeah, man, no problem. I just, Super, super kind. Yeah. To me. Um, and then, like, like I said, him and I talk back and forth quite a bit. Now we're always talking about like gear and music and stuff like that. And same deal with Ryan. You know, Ryan's always promoted my work. So like. I have nothing but good things to say about all those guys. And honestly, like when it comes to a lot of their stuff, I really don't think there's anything I disagree with. And they're just a, a sincerely good group of guys who want to see other men prosper. And like, that's what's sorely missing in the world right now is that like men don't put themselves first. We're not told to put ourselves first. And that's part of the reason why the red pill really rubs people the wrong ways. Because when you think about a concept like dread, order, as you mentioned, yeah, the kind of central social order, you're going against that. And it is in men's best interest to put themselves first. One of my favorite red pill principles is, you know, like the idea of mental point of origin where like, you need to understand that like you need to best help. You can only help other people once you've sufficiently helped yourself. 
that always has to be at the forefront of your mind. So like, you know, I always have to go to the gym so that way I feel cognitively and physically well enough. I have to put my job first when I'm there because that's what's going to keep the bills on, you know, the tax collector at bay, you know, and like all these things have to be done for my own prosperity. So that way, you know, if there are other people that I need to care for, other situations that need handled, then I'm best able to do them because I'm taking care of myself first. Um, and that is a very, very, very important lesson. And when guys learn that, then typically they find out, you know, they may either get angry or they find out that like, hey, I've been living for other people this entire time. And, you know, they let life happen to them rather than kind of steering their own ship. Yes. Well, uh, this is very, uh, very true that the red pill is mostly about um actually when, when you think about it, it it allows you um it's more it's more about like empowerment and allowing you to chart your own path by making yourself your like mental point of origin because most people these days they just tend to be puppets for uh the greater like societal norms which are just dysfunctional as opposed to like free thinking individuals that are willing to go against the grain and question a lot of the precepts of the prevailing uh, gynocentric order that we live in. And that's how I always viewed like the red pill. I didn't view it as it's a mass movement um, per se. And I personally don't want it to be like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're seeing the problems with the red pill, quote unquote, going mainstream right now by nobody understanding it and everybody, you know, it, it essentially becomes a container word, right? Is uh, a phrase that Ryan Stone uses and I think he coined, but um, I, I find it's very, very useful. Um, I tweeted this out earlier today and I've tweeted out things similar to it before, but like anytime you hear the term masculinity, typically it's being used to manipulate guys nowadays. Like uh, if you ask Matt Walsh what masculinity is, he's going to tell you it's however much you can look like Matt Walsh. If I tell you what masculinity is, it's probably going to boil down to something that makes you look like me. And like, that's not for me to decide. The literal definition of masculinity is just like pertaining to men. So like you fill that box with whatever you want to fill it with and you do with that as you please. But like, you know, for the most part today, people are going to use that word just to manipulate you. And one thing that red pill is going to, you know, kind of instruct you towards is just to not be manipulated and not be taken advantage of, which is what happens to men writ large today. Because once again, you're now looking out for yourself through, you know, red pill praxeology. And, you know, now women don't like that. People don't like that because they want you to essentially be a doormat for them. Yep. That's how it boils down to. Well, man, we're um we're approaching now like oh yeah, well past an hour actually, but really great conversation, Kyle, and like thank you so much again for coming on. But before we depart, could you let my audience know uh, where they can keep up with your latest projects? Absolutely. So you can find me at Kyle Matovic on Twitter. I'll spell that out for you. That's K Y L E M A T O V C I K. I had to emphasize the C because I know my last name is a little bit tricky. Um, I have a link tree on there that will take you to everywhere where you can find me. I host the In Liberty and Health podcast. Um, you can find that on all audio or audio <laughs> audio podcatchers. I do five till midnight as well. That's five or uh, eight p.m. Eastern time on Mondays at eight o'clock with Samuel Urban, host of Illegitimate Scholar Adam Nutter, uh, host of Cult of Us, and the guys from Biting the Bullet, Luke and Typo. Um, I also do a podcast called Cognitive Vigilance, where if you like red pill stuff, we talk about a lot of that. That's on at uh, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday nights. I'm 
we've been a little shoddy with it because our one co-host has had some personal issues come up, but that's all fine and dandy. And you can also check out my band called A Common Crown. Um, if you go to acommoncrown.com, you'll find us everywhere. If you look us up on YouTube, we'll come right up. And um, yeah, I'm mostly active on Twitter. If you just look at my name, I'll be up there. And uh, I think that's all I got to plug. Like I said earlier, on quite, the show, yeah, a lot. I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's always good to be active because I'm I'm of the opinion that being active is off is like the best remedy for any type of like an internal dysfunction or like depression or whatever. It keeps you on your toes and it keeps you moving because if you're not moving, you're effectively decaying. <laughs> yes, yes. If you're not moving, you're dying. All right, man. Well, to my audience, I thank you yet again for your generous attention, and with that. El Nino has spoken.